If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. And uh, we have been walking through the life of Christ chronologically, and now we are in the final week of Christ um, between Passion Week, or in Passion Week, it's between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. The sermon series is called The Final Steps as we go through the life of Christ. And this message is called The Glory That Follows. The glory that follows. So John chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it audibly. You can just answer it in your head, in your spirit. But I want you to think about it. If you could know when you would die, would you want to know? Some people might say yes. They would want to know because it would allow them to prepare for the moment. Um, It would allow them to have conversations that they feel like they need to have. It would allow them to make apologies to people that they've hurt or to maybe hurt people that never apologize to them. I don't know. I'm not going to judge you. Um, If you could know, then uh, some people uh, will get an opportunity to say the things they've always wanted to say to somebody. Some people might go on a crime spree. They're like, well, I'm not going to die at, a, at this bank robbery. I already know I'm going to die from something else. So let's you know, go on a crime spree. Um, or some people, better people maybe, would do all the good they can instead of all the crimes they could if you knew when you were going to die. Uh, other people might say no. They would not want to know when they would die because it would take away all of the spontaneity of life. Uh, It would remove the mystery, and it would probably cause them to live in fear, trying to prevent the inevitable. If you knew you were, let's say, going to die in a car accident on Friday, would you get in the car on Friday? No. You wouldn't take an Uber. You wouldn't go near a car. You would stay as far away from a vehicle as humanly possible. And so uh, you might seclude yourself and hide away in fear of death if you knew, so you wouldn't want to know. And and so much of our human experience is based on that we don't know what will happen next. When we read the stories in the Bible, the biblical characters did not know how the story would unfold. Joseph didn't know that he would go from prisoner to prime minister until God made it happen. Moses didn't know that God would part the Red Sea until God did. He just stood there at a sea and nowhere to go and waited on God. Gideon didn't know that he would be able to defeat the 135,000-man Midianite army with only 300 men until he ran out and faced them. We read these stories, because most of these stories we've heard in children's church growing up, whatever. We read these stories with the end in mind, and we're like, hold on, Gideon. Hold on, Moses. Hold on, David. Hold on, Joseph. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, but they didn't know that. They didn't know how the story would end. They live their lives just the way we live our lives, one foot in front of the other, one day to the next day. And so... They didn't know what the future holds any more than you or I do. Jesus was the exception. He knew exactly when, how, where, and why he would die. 
And knowing all of that did not prevent him from accomplishing his destiny. If anything, it gave him more resolve to see it through. Scripture tells us that Jesus set his face like a stone, not allowing anything to deter him, distract him, or disrupt him. He was on God's mission. Praise, popularity, or persecution would not keep him from pressing forward. That's a three-part sermon right there. I'm not going to preach it, but if you wanted to preach it, you could do it. Praise, popularity, or persecution wouldn't keep him from, from pressing forward. So in John 12, we're picking up the story of Jesus during Passion Week. We're looking at verses 20 through 23 at this first part. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, and Philip has a Greek name, which may be why they came to him. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, and not the Greeks, but Philip and Andrew, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Galilee and its surrounding areas were home to a Jewish and Gentile population. John makes, uh, he specifically mentions that Gentiles have come, Greeks have come to Philip, who was from Galilee. So it stands to reason that he knew, uh, they knew him, they knew who he was. These Greeks are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is Passover week. So it seems like they're God-fearing Gentiles, converts to Judaism, If they are not, then it was highly unlikely that the Jewish leaders would have accepted their visit to Jerusalem because they would have been considered uncircumcised pagans. They come to the city and they want to meet Jesus. Somehow, somewhere, they've heard about Jesus and or they've run into a friend and and now they've run into a friend that can give them access to Jesus. And when Philip and Andrew approached Jesus, he responded, this way. He said, the hour has come for me to be glorified. But he's not talking about glory from the Greeks. He was not referring to popularity. He was referring to a different kind of glory. Glory that follows pain. Glory that follows suffering. Glory that follows being in the center of God's will, regardless of where that takes you. We would have expected Jesus to say the hour has come that the Son of Man should be crucified. But Jesus saw beyond the cross to the glory that would follow. Verses 24 through 26. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So but when Jesus uh, started off this talk by saying, truly, truly, in the Greek it's amen, amen. And essentially, It's the way of saying, listen up, guys, because I'm about to say something really important. Jesus gave 
the disciples this word picture that would make sense to them. They're agricultural farmers, fishermen. They understand the principle of a grain of wheat. And so he compared his life to a seed, to a grain of wheat. And while we often make a big deal about our life and our rights, the truth is that when compared to the vastness of creation and the universe, our lives are small specks, little blips on the radar of eternity. And Jesus knew that his life and his death, well, let me, let me say this, he knew that his death would accomplish way more than his life ever would. And one commentator said that Jesus used this grain of wheat to illustrate the spiritual truth that there can be no glory without suffering. There can be no fruitful life without death. There can be no victory in God's kingdom without surrender. Of itself, a seed is weak. It's useless. But when it's planted, it dies and becomes fruitful. And at times, a seed, when it bears fruit, bears something that we couldn't have even expected. During the quarantine, I built my wife a raised garden box. It's four feet by four feet. It's big and heavy and filled with soil. So we went to Home Depot and we bought some seeds, some things that we, would, we eat. We enjoy eating carrots, onions, sweet peppers, banana peppers. Two things actually grew in this garden. Um, or three. One was mushrooms that we didn't plant. Um, but, you know, so that's just from the grass clippings that were at the bottom of it for mulch. But we had yellow carrots grow. I don't know. I wasn't expecting yellow carrots. I was expecting orange carrots, the real carrots, the regular carrots, you know. And I pull one up and it's as yellow as the sun. I was like, okay. But, what I, but we planted carrots. I was okay with that. But we planted banana peppers and sweet peppers. And I know what they look like. So I was really surprised when one plant grew better than anything else and out popped a bell pepper. I didn't plant a bell pepper. I planted a banana pepper and a sweet pepper. And a bell pepper is not either one of those things. Sometimes when you plant the seed, you get an unexpected harvest. Sometimes when you plant a seed, you realize they mislabeled your seed packet. But we understand that when a, in and of itself, as I said, a seed, it's weak, it's useless. But when it dies, when it's planted, it dies. It explodes. It bursts open. And life comes from that dead seed. And so there is both beauty and bounty when a seed dies and fulfills its purpose. If a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put in the cold, dark earth. But the only way that it can ever achieve its goal is to be planted. Do you know that seeds, I mean, unless you eat the seed, it's good for nothing until you plant it. And then it bursts forth with life. And this statement by Christ is a challenge to us as he is talking about surrendering his life unto death. This is a challenge to us for us to totally surrender everything to him. Surrender our will, 
our desires, our temptations, our dreams, our plans, surrender everything all to him. We either choose to serve ourselves or to serve Christ. We choose to please ourselves or receive honor in our surrender. And because Jesus was speaking to disciples who would one day be martyred for holding on to the faith, Jesus' statement is both a prophecy and a promise. They would give their lives in this world and they would gain eternal life through their glorious sacrifice. But what did Jesus mean when he said, whoever hates this life, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life? Are we supposed to actually hate our life? Are we supposed to hate our family? Hate our job? Hate our spouse and kids? No, of course not. True disciples of Christ must have their priorities ordered correctly. If we choose to love our lives more than we love Christ, we'll lose the very life we're trying so hard to preserve. And Jesus wants us to be so committed to him, to living for him, that if someone were to compare our lives, it would look like we hated this life because we love Christ so much. That we died to ourselves in such a way that we weren't pursuing our own pleasures and purposes. Instead, we were choosing to spend our resources on advancing the cause of Christ. An example I could offer are university graduates coming out of Chi Alpha. And these, many of these graduates are coming out of secular universities with agricultural degrees or business degrees or education degrees, they could go into business for themselves. They could go out into the marketplace and earn a degree based on or earn a living based on the degree they have. Instead, they put that life on hold and a lot of them go on the mission field. And they, they could make significantly more than they ever will by becoming a missionary. But God placed a call on their life, and they choose to spend their lives preaching the gospel and taking the gospel to places where there are no churches, where there are no pastors, and sometimes where there are no other missionaries in the entire country. Having our, I'm sorry, hating our life doesn't mean that we're careless or destructive. Hating our life means that we are trying to free ourselves from our own selfish ambition and pursuits. One commentator stated it this way. He said, we must disown the tyrannical rule of our own self-centeredness. Really think about that statement for a second. We must disown, disavow, have nothing to do with Avoid completely the tyrannical, the oppressive, the controlling, the manipulative, the overbearing rule of our own self-centeredness. When you are tempted to do something that your flesh wants to do, that is your self-centeredness, that's the flesh, that's the sin that is battling you for control. It desires to oppress you 
Sin desires to control you. It desires to manipulate you, to make you think that what you want is actually something good when the reality is it's not good. It's destructive. Pursuing selfish goals is what caused Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And it is what causes all of the sin and negative consequences in our lives. We want something God doesn't want us to have. We tell God, that's not fair. Somebody else has a boat. Somebody else has a nicer house, a nicer car, a more attractive spouse. Why can't I? Don't say that. Don't pray that prayer. Especially not if you're praying with your spouse. That'd be really awkward. We tell God it's not fair. If we want it, if it brings us pleasure, it must be a good thing. We don't see all the terrible consequences that choice will bring into our lives. Adam and Eve were at the garden, or in the Garden of Eden. They were at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They saw the tree. It was good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasing to the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three wrapped up in that statement in Genesis. James captures it when he talks about it. That's how the enemy leads you astray. The lust of the flesh, it it looked delicious. It would make her wise, and it was pleasing to the eyes. So it was all the things that drew her away from the truth of God's word. And she thought, if it's good, why would God withhold it? But the reality is that the fruit was neither good nor evil. It was the command, do not eat it. And the command was disobeyed. And when they ate of it, their eyes were opened because they had now brought in evil through disobedience. And so they did not possibly comprehend all of the terrible consequences that would take place. And when Satan deceived them, when he tempted them, do you think he said, now, this is going to cause a whole lot of problems. Like so many problems that God is literally going to have to come down himself and be born of a virgin and die on the cross for your sins and the sins of your, 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 everybody that comes after you, your descendants. Eve, it's going to make childbirth way worse. Adam, you're going to work way harder than you ever did. It's going to create all sorts of problems. Are you sure you want to do it? No, of course Satan didn't tell them all the consequences. He tells us there are no consequences to our sins. But we are smart enough, hopefully mature enough in the faith that when we read the Bible, we see there are consequences to our sins. And God is trying to protect us from those consequences by giving us his command, don't do it, don't give in. Because what I have for you is so much better than this temptation, this sin. And so we cry foul When we see something we want, we think that it's a good thing and God won't give it to us. Why are you so mean? Why are you preventing me from having this good thing? 
But when we see things from God's perspective, we see that the thing we want so badly isn't actually good at all. Maybe the thing we want isn't necessarily evil, but we've turned the pursuit of that thing into an obsession. And it's all we want, it's all we think about, it's all we talk about. To which Jesus would reply to us, unless you lose this selfish ambition of yours, unless you let go of your grip on things that are not from me, Unless you only accept things from my hand that I want you to have, then you're not actually gaining anything. You're losing everything. You're never in control. I know we like to think we are, but we're not. We're never in control. Either God is in control or our selfish nature, sin, and the devil are in control. And so everyone surrenders to something. You either surrender to God's spirit that gives life, or you surrender to your flesh, which brings death. I want you to hear these next statements by Jesus in John 12, 27 through 28. This is what he says. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John gives us one of the most beautiful pictures of Christ's humanity here. Now is my soul troubled. This word troubled means to be stirred up, to be unsettled. He knew what was around the corner. He knew he was facing the most intense suffering, ever invented by mankind through crucifixion. He knew he would die from this beating that he endured. He knew and he was troubled. The roads that he had walked all over Israel to preach the gospel had eventually led him to the hardest road he would ever walk, the road into Jerusalem for the final time knowing full well what lay at the end of that road. With all of that, what was Jesus' response? Notice, he didn't say, what shall I do? He knew what he had to do. He knew the task. He knew the mission. He knew the mandate from the Father. So instead of asking the disciples, what shall I do? He asked them, what shall I say? In the moment of our greatest trial, the moment that God has brought us to in order to test our character, what can we do other than keep trusting him? In that moment of surrender, in that moment of testing, our words reveal our heart. Our words reveal our heart. In moments of testing, when the heat is on, All our impurities and insecurities rise to the surface. When we get to that critical moment of testing, we have one of two responses. Will our response be, Father, save me from this mission of yours? How can it be when it was God's purpose that led us to this moment? Or will our response be, Father, 
glorify your name. In this moment and in every moment, in the waiting, in the suffering, in the pain, in the discomfort, in the persecution, in the frustration, in the difficulty, in the darkest moments of my life, Father, glorify your name. The word glorify here is is a unique Greek word. The root word doxa refers to brightness, beauty, and even fame. And so one commentator said to really get the idea from the Greek, we should actually substitute the word glorify with the word spotlight. Jesus was consciously giving God the Father permission to spotlight himself through what would happen through Christ. And when faced with a difficult task or decision, we can turn our thoughts back to why we're on this earth to glorify God. Our life can spotlight God's beauty and spread his fame. We can pray that God would guide us and work through us to glorify his own name. So our prayer should be, Father, in my weakest and most vulnerable moment, put the spotlight on you and not me. Father, in my strongest and most popular moment, put the spotlight on you and not me. Father, if there's a name that deserves to be in lights, it's your name so all can see it. Glorify, put a spotlight on your name and not mine. What was the result of Jesus' heart cry that the Father get glory from his life and his death? It's in John 12, 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This was only one of three times that the Father spoke with an audible voice from heaven in the Gospels. The first was at Jesus' baptism. The second was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the third is here. Audible voice so all the people around could hear a voice speaking from heaven. When our desire is for God to get glory, that's what happens. Whether we're like Moses and facing an impossible path that only God can open up a a way through. Whether we're like Joseph and we're dealing with false accusations and paying the price for them. Or whether we're like many missionaries today who are in dangerous places preaching the gospel. And their level of protection is 100% dependent upon their relationship with God. When we pray for God to be glorified in an impossible situation, God will be glorified. God will get the spotlight, and rightly so. There is a glory that only follows this level of sacrifice and surrender. What's so sad is that many Christians seem seem for this to be optional. They consider total surrender to Christ as voluntary and not required. Something they can put off to a later date. They forget about the rebuke that Christ gave the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 when he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
It's a very vivid word picture, especially because the word spit in Greek means vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth because you're neither cold nor hot. Think about that for a second. God would rather someone be a full-blown atheist than a lukewarm Christian. He would rather you be so far away from him that you have nothing to do with him than for you to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. One foot in his kingdom and one foot in the enemy's kingdom. Lukewarm Christians cause Jesus to be sick to his stomach. For us, it is time we get off the fence. If Christ fully surrendered, holding nothing back from the pursuit of God's will, and we're called to be like Christ, then God expects total surrender from us as well. There's a glory that only follows total surrender. But the glory, the spotlight, it's not for us. It's for Christ. Ask our worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me this morning? One pastor, he used to have a radio program. And in one of his messages, he said this. He says, God does not expect us to be comfortable. He does expect us to be conformable. He doesn't expect us to be comfortable. He expects us to be conformable. He said, if we're looking for comfortable lives, then we'll protect our plans. We'll protect our desires. We'll save our lives. And we'll never be planted like the grain of wheat that Jesus talked about. But if we yield our lives and we let God plant us, we will never be alone. But we'll have the joy of being fruitful to the glory of God. Are you living your life to be comfortable or are you living your life to be conformable to his image, his standard, and his son? Many people seek their own comfort. We don't, dis- we, we don't seek ways to be uncomfortable. We don't turn off our air conditioning in July in Texas just because I like being uncomfortable. People would seriously question your sanity. We seek our own comfort. When you walk into a restaurant and things aren't working well, the staff is is not accommodating, they've got a problem with their air conditioning or their wait staff or something, we get up and go, we leave, we're not comfortable. We, We seek comfort, we seek our plans, we seek our purposes. Jesus is asking you, are you willing to love him so fully and surrender to him so completely? Are you willing to follow Christ's path and accomplish the mission of the Father even when you don't understand what he's doing? Are you willing to let your hearts cry, Lord, you can have it all. All the glory, all the fame, all the spotlight, all the praise. Lord, you can have it all. All my hopes, all my dreams, all my ambitions, all my time, all my industry, all my resources. I hold nothing back from you. There's a glory that only follows that kind of surrender. Are you willing to make that kind of decision today?